several miles off the main highway, tucked away in a secluded canyon on prime vineyard property, stands a rustic barn that was built many decades before the vines around it were planted. In that barn, a sophisticated broadcast and recording studio has been built. The barn also has a well-hidden root cellar stocked with many of the world's most exceptional wines, only to be shared with guests who secretly come to offer their insights and tell their stories. Guests are sworn to secrecy and are shuttled to the studio aboard a John Deere tractor. Those who cannot make the journey in person are interviewed by satellite hookup, and sometimes the crew simply sneaks away with microphones in hand and interviews guests in barrel rooms, wine cellars, and other magical places. All of this is done like clockwork every single week so that we can bring you another episode of Grape Encounters Radio. Peel me a grape Crush me some ice Skin me a peach Save the fuzz for my pillow All right, it is time for your Grape Encounter of the Week. And if you ever, I mean ever, wanted a crash course in the history of wine in America, there is nothing better than the book that has just come out called American Wine, A Coming of Age Story, authored by Tom Acatelli. And Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. All right, so you're normally located in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not Napa. No, not Napa. Uh, East (laughs) Coast, Cambridge, Mass. I want to begin by saying this. The book is not what I would call voluminous in terms of the number of pages. This book is both comprehensive and still a very comfortable read. And that was one of the first things that caught my eye about the book. But also, I don't know that there's any book like this that gives a nice, thorough explanation of what happened from day one to today. Right. There is not, actually. This is the uh, first single volume history of American fine wine. And when I say American fine wine, I mean the higher end varietals that we're all familiar with today. The book's timeline basically starts in the late 1940s. And as a lot of your listeners probably know, uh, it would pick up steam in the 1960s. And that's exactly what happened. So in other words, we're starting in the post-prohibition era mm-hmm. and then moving forward to today. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Does it shock you how many states still have legislation in place that was authored during the days of prohibition that has mostly been rejected by other states but still exists in some. Right. It is kind of ridiculous. What, what you just said is, is a, a vestige of prohibition and sort of paranoia about, you know, alcohol and its effects and the artificial black market the prohibition created and, will, my God, will it come back? I mean, it's interesting because pre-prohibition, wine was not that exotic a thing. You had, a, you know, of course, tens of millions of uh, Southern European immigrants who drank it every day and made it every day, including my grandparents. And it was just sort of something that was there. It was, it was a foodstuff, you know. And then Prohibition renders it, along with spirits and beer, as sort of this exotic thing, this kind of like, you know, legal thing, that, but morally reprehensible. And it still has that. And it still has to sort of shake that off in some states, in some areas of the country. Does it shock you that we see very little attacks foist upon the whiskey world and vodka world and tequila world? 
those are, for whatever reason, not facing the disdain of people who find alcohol objectionable, but wine seems almost to be unduly picked on. That's shocking to me. I think it's because wine is so ubiquitous. It's, it's everywhere. It has a presence in the marketplace and, more importantly, in popular culture and perception greater than any other drink in American history, really. <clears throat> the only one that comes close is maybe whiskey 200 years ago at the start of the Republic. But wine occupies a unique place, so it becomes a unique target. You mentioned whiskey, and whiskey is seen very differently than it used to be seen. And, mm-hmm. you know, now we have whiskey tastings just like we have wine tastings. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that we've become very conscious of these higher-end interpretations of products that we took for granted before. Sure, sure. And it's really interesting because wine started it all, right? Craft beer has followed pretty much the same trajectory as fine wine, and now craft spirits, or what are called craft spirits, or micro-distilling, whatever you want to call it, is following craft beer, which was based on fine wine. And it is actually interesting. There's a, there, one of the things that really surprised me, my first book was A History of American Craft yeah. Beer. And so... I naturally assume that wine, you know, by the way we understand it today went way, way back, right? Yeah. But I was very surprised to find that the first sort of significant post-prohibition winery in the United States, the Robert Mondavi Winery in Napa, started up around the same time as the first craft brewery in the United States post-prohibition, which was Fritz Maytag's Anchor Brewing in San Francisco. Wow. But, I mean, wine obviously took off in a trajectory that's still sort of rocket ship going up. Craft beer took at least two or three decades to get to where the phenomenal growth where it is now. But I definitely see that craft beer is giving wine a run for its money, and it's really super amazing to look at how many craft beers are out there and how many cues they're taking from the wine industry. Exactly. Yep, exactly. And I I would just say that it's sort of a golden age to be an alcoholic beverage consumer in the United States. I mean, it's sort of unimaginable how far everything has come since the 1960s. Yeah. Uh, Wine especially, though. So you wrote the craft beer book, and then you wrote the wine book. And again, I'm talking to Tom. Tom Acatelli, who is the author of American Wine, A Coming-of-Age Story. First question is, the subtitle, A Coming-of-Age Story, is an interesting choice of words because uh, I would say that we've been of age for some time now. Yeah, exactly right. But it sort of traces the maturation and development of both the industry itself, the personalities behind it, and there, you know, the two or three, four pivotal events that really drove it forward. So it's been coming of age, I think, if things really picked up in the 1960s. I think most people would agree with that. And that it, for a long, long time, understandably, and some would even argue still to this day, American wine was very much in the shadow of France, as was the entire world. But I think America sort of stepped around and out of the shadow of France, beginning in the 1970s especially. Okay, so a very dear friend of this show is Mike Gergich. Oh, wow. And, and okay. I always tell people that Mike is the most important living American winemaker. Do you agree? I would I would definitely put him up there, yes. Def- oh, well, well, winemaker, yes, certainly. Oh, yes. I thought he was about, like, wine figure, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, still going strong at, what, he must be 94 years Nine. old. But that really was, you know, in my mind, the turning point, the judgment of Paris. Too bad that the movie Bottle Shock didn't get the story right. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah. Anyway. Well, actually, it was a pretty good movie, but, you it know. It was interesting in itself, but, yeah, it, the, the history of it was kind of garbled. Yeah, but, huge disservice yeah. to anybody that loves wine because Mike did not participate in the movie because it was a, a complete fictional telling of what really happened. And, mm-hmm. you know, in reality, what really 
really happened was far more interesting than what was in the script of Bottle Shock. They should have told that story of a 10-year-old that grew up in a family that was so large and so poor that he had to pack his bags and find his way in life and eventually found his way out to California where he was the central figure really in the judgment of Paris. But, you Mm -hmm. know, it's only now that he's really starting to get the credit he deserves. Sure, sure. And then it was interesting because about four years after, his winery, his new winery that he started after leaving uh, Chateau Montalena, won the Great Chardonnay Showdown that the Chicago Tribune organized in 1980. Yes. So he won like the two major blind tastings in the world, in the Western world, at that time period. I think it's pretty amazing that when you go into a Trader Joe's, which an awful lot of people (laughs) turn to for wine throughout the country, that I think the single most expensive bottle of wine that you can buy is a Gurgich Hills Chardonnay. Uh And people are willing to pay that because, A, it's got so much history behind it, and B, it's just that good, you know, still that good. So let's get into American wine uh, a little bit more. First of all, why would you even attempt to tackle something that is such a complex project with a lot of moving parts? And then second of all, how did you manage to get it boiled down to a comfortable read, because I think that may be the most important thing about the book that you've written is that you've done a great job of telling the story without doing it in 2,000 pages. Right. Thank you. Thank you. The first thing, I I was reticent to take on the assignment, okay? I I thought it was too big a subject to handle. Craft beer is one thing. It's for a long, long time, it was a fairly small, clubby industry, right? It really really exploded only the last 10 to 12 years. So fine wine struck me as like just too big a subject to tackle. But then when I got into it, I realized two things. One, that it actually didn't go back that far in the United States, as we understand it today. And number two, that you could boil it down to two or three, maybe four major events and a handful of personalities. And their role and those events' roles were what was pivotal. And it and all that together, you know, we're talking about maybe a dozen events and people together take the whole movement through the last half century or so. Tom, we're going to take a very quick break here. I want to finish the answer to that question, but then I have a couple of really important questions I want to ask you. So can you hang with me for a sec? Certainly. All right. We're talking to Tom Acatelli. He is the author of a book that just came out in September. It's called American Wine, A Coming of Age Story. Definitely a book that I can recommend. It's very intriguing. It does a great job of taking you through wine then and now and how we got to this place in history. And definitely, you'll learn more reading this book, I'm thinking, than almost anything you do. So we'll come back and talk to Tom. And Tom, hang with me. And you're listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson and my special guest, Tom Acatelli, author of American Wine, A Coming of Age Story. Grape Encounters will continue shortly. If you're near a computer or have your smartphone in hand, join our Facebook group page by searching for GrapeEncountersRadio.com. David will return after these enlightening messages. And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues.
Encounters Radio and my very special guest, Tom Acatelli. He is the author of American Wine, A Coming of Age Story. Boy, this is a book, if you can get your hands on it, I strongly recommend you spend, you know, an afternoon, two afternoons reading this book because if you ever wanted a concise overview of what has happened since the beginning of the wine industry in the United States all the way to the present, this is where you're going to get the information in a very digestible form. Great book. And Tom, again, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you being on. All right. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we were talking about the Mike Gergich victory at the Judgment of Paris back in 1976. In your mind, what are some of the most significant things that have happened in wine history that's taken us to where we are today? Well, I think the Judgment of Paris has to sort of stand at the pinnacle. It was the most influential event. As somebody involved in the tasting put it, it basically took American wine and the American wine industry 20 years forward in a day. Wow. So it was that big a deal. The other big events, I think, I mean, you can't get around Robert Mondavi. Whatever became of his uh, his winery later on, his influence early on in those first 20, 25 years was just incredible. He was like a one-man sales force, not just for his own brands, but for the industry as a whole. I think Emile Pinot, his rise in the French wine industry and his, the techniques that he pioneered became very influential over here. And one of the people who went over there at time of uh, you know, Pinot's greatest influence was a lawyer named Robert Parker. And his yes. newsletter beginning, beginning in the late 1970s was extremely influential. And I think you know, you'd have to also include the French paradox segment 60 Minutes ran in the very early 90s because that sort of turned people back on wine especially red wine. Yeah, very interesting story and really did convert people back to wine because I think everybody had the epiphany that if I drink wine, I'm not only going to put more pleasure back into my life, but but I'm going to feel better too. And I know I feel like a million bucks. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. It was win-win. Let's go back to Robert Parker for a second. So yes, lawyer turned most important wine critic, I guess in history, there's nobody that Mm -hmm. I can think of that would be more important than Parker. How influential do you think Parker really is? How influential is he to the layperson, you know, as opposed to the person who's a wine aficionado? I think that early on, he was extremely influential in sort of turning on the, the sort of casual consumer, somebody who was, you know, familiar with what was going on or liked wine or was vaguely familiar with styles. I think he was very influential in taking those people to the next step. What really made him influential, though, was something that kind of happened unwittingly. He devised the 100-point scale for his ratings for his newsletters, Wine Advocate Newsletter. And he wasn't the first, you know, he did not invent the 100-point scale. That's that's kind of a myth. Like, either there, it had been in different variations in Australia and the United States, even Europe. Right. But he was the one who popularized it. And I think that, more than anything, defined his influence. And you suddenly you had wine being rated like any other commodity. And it was something that people could grasp right away. Anybody who had been to high school could understand very much that a, a wine that Parker rated 92 was much better than a wine he rated 85. So for better or worse, I'm not endorsing the 100-point scale or whatnot. Well, I always like to say it's not a 100-point scale. It's a 20-point scale, really. Uh, who's going to look at a wine under 80 points? 
points. In actuality, an 80-point wine is something you and I, Tom, are never going to drink. Right. You know? But it's also unfortunate because his tasting notes, especially the early wine advocates, are fantastic. Like, I mean, they're just so detailed. And he actually thought that, hey, that's what people are going to look to. And there were, there were other great wine writers at the time, too, doing the same thing. And that just sort of got, you know, the 100-point scale just sort of swallowed all that up. So, And, of course, its influence has waned in the last 20 or so years. Uh, I, I just There's just so much information out there now about how to pick wine, how to pair wine, where to buy it. No critic could ever hold the influence that he did because he came along at sort of this perfect moment in time. I think if there's any trend right now in the wine business, it's that all of the rules that were kind of put out there for all of us who would dare venture into the fine wine community really are not important anymore. Mm -hmm. We're seeing some, you know, outrageous blends of wine. We're blending outside of the family. So Bordeaux and Rhone's are being blended together. Things that would never have been done, you know, even 10 years ago. And now this out-of-the-box perspective on wine seems to be overwhelming the market at this point to where these hybrid blends are actually more desirable, more expensive. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I think that is kind of the, the new challenge for the industry. It must be, a, I mean, it must be a real headache to get people to notice, the, you know, a new arrival. But for the consumer, it's kind of a, you know, a serious golden age for consumption and, and, and what to, you know, the variety just would have been unheard of two generations ago. Yeah. And it, it, it really is amazing. I mean, again, though, it, it all started not that long ago. And I want to make the point, too, that it didn't have to end up the way it, it We didn't have to have the happy ending we have. There All sorts of things could have gone the other way. That's a great yeah. point. But tell us what event that went the right way that could have gone the wrong way would have sent us in the wrong direction. Well, one of the biggest was that Mandavi almost went out of business very early on. And that would have kind of... You you know, close the door on the idea of a successful winery specializing in these higher-end European-style varietals. But he was he was rescued in a, a very somewhat complex deal with uh, the Rainier Brewing Company in Seattle, buying a huge stake in his winery. I think, you know, the Judgment of Paris could have... What if it had gone the other way? Stephen Spurrier, the primary organizer, originally intended for just to be a blind, like a, a, a tasting, like not, not a blind contest, right? And then he realized at the day of or toward the day of that the French judges he had asked were not familiar with California wine and so might turn up their noses once they knew they were tasting a California wine as opposed to a French one. So then he asked them, well, would you mind doing a blind tasting so you don't know which is which? So suppose he hadn't had that epiphany, you know? I mean, it's one of those things. I mean, I think the U.S. wine industry would still be doing well, you know. It was it was coming along at, at, a, at a nice pace, but it would not be where it is today. You know, the biggest wine market in the world, probably arguably the most sophisticated consumers, the greatest media covering it. I mean, it's just, you know, we're in a, a stratosphere that only France has been in in the last several hundred years. And amazing that we read now that the younger generation in France is uh, essentially poo-pooing wine. Uh -huh. And it's yep. going to be very questionable about what the wine in industry in France is going to look like you know, 10, 20 years from now, because it appears at least that the younger generation, the millennials in France are migrating more towards spirits. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Doors wide open, America. In northern France, they love beer, too. I mean, that's the other thing. It's, uh, there's, a, there's a pretty good uh, French craft beer culture brewing. So, Yeah. Hey, Tom, can you hang with me one more second? I'd, I'd like to sure. just uh, wrap things up, but there's more that I'd love to ask you if you got the time. Sure. Okay. Certainly. All right. Hang with me, and uh, we'll be back with more Grape Encounters and my special guest, Tom Acatelli, author of American Wine, A Coming-of-Age Story. Book just came out in September. 
you want to definitely check this book out. I think a couple of days invested in this book is going to put you way ahead of the pretentious person who comes in with a new Porsche and a new girlfriend and thinks they know everything about wine. You can know more. You just need this book. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters after this. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of San Luis Obispo County, California. Yes, it all depends on how you drink the wine. Paperback And now, here's the guy who went from hipster to sipster, David Wilson. just a couple of years ago that we learned that wine is now the number one preferred adult beverage among Americans and we have aced out spirits, we've aced out beer, we're really into wine and there's a great reason for it. Here in America, we make some amazing amazing wine and there are some historical events that have been the catalyst for the prestige that has been bestowed upon American wines and one person who's now assimilated all of the really important information about what got us from uh, square one to the square we're in right now, which is, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> Tom, maybe that's a good question for you. If we started at square one, where are we now? My guest, Tom Acatelli, the author of American Wine. I think we're at a point where we are in a stratosphere where that, that only France has occupied in the last few hundred years. And I think the American wine industry and the American wine marketplace is very much several years into uncharted territory. What does that that's mean? Why. What does that mean? Well, the, the, we're, we're the world's biggest marketplace for wine, only the last couple of years, you know, and there's more varieties available than ever before, more styles, more blends from more producers from more countries. And I, I do think that we now have at least one generation, if not two, that have sort of grown up with this idea that America has always been, if not wine-loving nation, then a, a nation that very much understands what it's about. Right. And it's interesting to see it develop because we're at a point that you can't find precedent domestically. You can't look back and say, oh, it was like that at some point. You know, you mentioned spirits earlier. I mean, you could theoretically go back to, you know, 1800, okay, or 1790 when George Washington was the nation's largest distiller out of Mount Vernon. And you could say, oh, well, you know, spirits had a golden age then in the United States, or the influx of German immigrants in the mid-1800s created this sort of fertile ground for breweries and beer-style growth in the U.S. that Prohibition wiped out. So you could say, oh, you know, that was a golden age for uh, beer. You can't really, can't compare what's going on in wine right now to an earlier period, in all seriousness. so I definitely agree with that, but it kind of begs the question, are spirit manufacturers and craft beer manufacturers sitting back looking at the tremendous growth that has occurred in the wine industry and saying, we got to be more like them? Mm. 
a very good question. I mean, I, I think they have been. But I mean, it, you know, when when you look at the way that spirits are positioning themselves, and certainly the way craft beers are positioning themselves, the language is almost identical to the language that's coming out of the wine industry now. Right. And you know, there's not just one whiskey and craft beer. I don't know how many are being made right now, but it's a phenomenal number, and they're even integrating into the craft beer business a lot of the things that we've been doing in the wine business for a long sure. time. Not the least of which is to put it in barrels. Right, right. I think you're right. I mean, I don't see how they can't imitate the uh, sort of rubric that wine has created over the last half century or so. That's sort of the way, not only to obvious success, you know, the, the wine industry has had, but it's the way to getting Americans to understand a drink, you know, that you want to take to another level. And also slow down and enjoy it because right, exactly. there, there, we went through a pretty long period of time when anything that had a significant amount of alcohol was for recreation because of the buzz. Uh-huh. But it seems now that the emphasis has shifted back to where it used to be, which is to enjoy wine, to enjoy craft beers, to enjoy some of these really exotic spirits that are being created for what they taste like, not what they will do to you after a half an hour of consuming them. Exactly. And fine wine created that context. The people in the industry created that context and the people covering it created that. So project for me, Tom, what's next? Okay. Uh, I think continued growth, sales-wise, variety-wise, number of wineries-wise, I don't know. I think that's actually going to contract some and you're going to see more consolidation in the industry. But I do think that the offerings and the variety available to the average American consumer is only going to grow. And as we discussed at the start of this, you know, I could see, you know, some walls coming down legally in in various states and localities that will also help the growth more. And that's going to be kind of exciting. How much has pretentiousness subsided in the last 20 years? Well, you know, I think the sort of influence of the, the, the older critics or the critics who sort of start up the 1970s have waned because of the growth of the internet. I mean, that's the growth of the internet's good or bad. I don't, I don't know because it can create instant experts who aren't really experts. But um, that's a very good question. I, I don't. I think it's subsided quite a bit for younger generations. People getting into it right now. Okay, people listening to your show are not going to be pretentious. They're, they're going to want straight ahead information. You know what I'm saying? They're well, yeah, want... yeah. If they're pretentious and they're listening to our show, we have a, a special meter. We can actually detect those people, and then uh-huh. and then we block the signal out to them. We don't allow. For, we don't even want them to listen. Sure. There are no, what I'm trying to say is there's no like a uh, handful of, of gatekeepers anymore for information. It's out there and it's up to people to seek it out and they can seek it out and it's an exciting, fun journey for them. To what do you attribute the massive increase in the number and especially of young people who feel compelled to become a sommelier, even a master som? I mean, that's really something that's unprecedented. Why? The positions themselves in the United States are fairly new or fa- are fairly new in popularity. They, they really started to rise after the 1970s in the 1980s. And I also think, you know, the depiction of these roles in popular culture has made them come across as exceedingly cool. And they, I'm sure they are, you know, great jobs. And I, I know some sommeliers and, and uh, Cicerones, the, the beer equivalent. I mean, they're, they're depicted as really cool jobs culturally and pop culturally. And I think that's what gets people into them. And, and just the sheer availability of them because of the rise in popularity. When did wine become cool? When did wine become cool? I think wine became cool after the Judgment of Paris and definitely became in vogue in the 1990s. I think the French Paradox segments on 60 Minutes are sort of a sort of a sleeping giant as far as influence. If you would, if, oh, well, yeah. oh, gosh. <laughs> How did we leave that out? <laughs> I know, right. I had Rex Pickett on the show a couple of years ago and asked him the question, hey, what would have happened if Miles had had an affinity for Viognier, let's say, as a, opposed to Pinot Noir? And he, he said, well, that's a pretty good question. <laughs> 
because really the reason that book even existed was because Rex Pickett, as a struggling author, was, you know, mm-hmm. hanging out with the likes of Richard Sanford in the Santa Rita Hills of California and was drinking an awful lot of Pinot Noir at not a very hefty price tag and became very much in love with the wine. But it could have been anything, don't you think? Mm. No, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, that's a really good point. And the, the movie itself that, that was based on his novel, I mean, that, that actually influenced sales. I mean, that, that, that's what the incredible thing is. It had a bottom line influence, especially on Merlot sales. So we just have a minute left. Of all of the things that you have reported on in the book, what are one or two of the stories that maybe we are not as familiar with that you think really ought to be up there with the judgment of Paris in terms of significance and how it impacted our love for wine? I think the encounter that Robert Parker had one evening at the California Barrel Tastings that the Four Seasons Restaurant in Manhattan used to host, he encountered a man named Robert Finnegan, who was then the biggest wine critic in the United States, and basically discovered that Finnegan did not like... Uh, the new the 82 Bordeaux that he had just tasted in, in the barrels. And basically what, what happened was that Parker realized that he did like it and that he had a chance to dethrone the reigning critic. And it was a very, it's a very interesting scene. And I painted in the book because Parker literally had just gotten off the plane from Paris and taken a cab to the dinner at the Four Seasons. And he sees Finnegan there and he realizes, well, this guy might not know what he's talking about. And Parker sort of goes for broke in his rave about the 82 Bordeaux and that makes his reputation and that influences the way so many Americans drank thereafter. Wow, so that's one story, and so, uh, the other would probably be the, the great uh, the great Chardonnay showdown in Chicago in 1980. So okay, so Parker has now kind of at least to some degree stepped aside. He's sold the advocate it's in the hands of investors from Singapore. He's got other people writing the lion's share of his reviews right now. Is there somebody? Yep. Is there somebody out there that's poised to take over the, the throne now? Is there somebody just waiting in the wings to be crowned? That's a very good question. I don't think anybody could ever replicate his influence because so many things converged at once for Parker. You know, not just that he devised the 100-point scale or popularized it in the, in the late 1970s, or the American wine marketplace was taking off in the wake of the judgment of Paris, but also that the baby boomers were coming into their own at the same time and had a ton of spending money and wanted to spend it. One of the things they wanted to spend it on was fine wine. And also just technologically, I mean, this was a time period, I mean, I'm not making a joke here, but when people literally waited for a newsletter at the mail to arrive in the mailbox, you know, you had to wait for the printed word. Now you can just, you can create a blog in minutes and, and sort of have the instantaneous criticism. So I, I don't think the stars will ever align for a wine critic quite like they align for Robert Parker. Well, I was hoping it would be me. <laughs> oh, okay, you. Because I, yes. I, I, use, I use words like yummy, and I'm perfectly comfortable doing that. No. All right. Hey, listen, Tom, what a pleasure to have you on. Tom Acatelli, the book is American Wine, A Coming-of-Age Story. I was so excited to receive the book, to be able to read through it, and to have Tom on the show. Tom, how can people find the book? The usual resources? Uh, the, it's all over retailers, uh, online, and uh, on-site. And how are sales going? You've only been out a couple of months, but you, know, you must uh, have a read good. on it. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're talking about uh, second and third printing now, so that's always Really? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Thanks. All right, well, listen, Tom, a real pleasure having you on. Again, definitely, folks, go out and buy this book because your knowledge level, at least in terms of the history of wine and how we got from there to here, will explode after you read the book, and it'll save you a lot of time and money. And you'll really be popular at parties, too. Just don't show up with a new girlfriend and a Porsche. 
<laughs> All right, Tom, I appreciate it. Hey, I hope everybody will buy the book and spend some quality time with it. So thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Okay, we will be back with more Grape Encounters in just a moment. So stay with us and go fill your glass with the good stuff. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters after this. He's setting down the wine glass and picking up the microphone. Here's your Grape Encounters host, David Wilson. And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. And it's been a while since we've talked cork and enclosures in general. So very thrilled to have on the show today, Peter Ledoon, who is the VP of Operations for Cork Supply USA. And Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. So let me just get one thing straight from the get-go. Sure. You sell corks, but you also sell the fake stuff as well. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we like to think of it a little differently, but yes, we do uh, distribute other closures. So how has your business changed, say, in the last you know five to ten years? Obviously, there was a time there where the screw caps just came on like gangbusters. Sure. Has that begun to slow down now, or are we seeing more of a migration back to corks, or are we where we are for good now? You don't see us too much of a market swings now as you did, I think, over the last five to ten years, as you mentioned. And, you know, screw caps and closures came on pretty hard about 10 years ago. I think people, you know, really started getting tired of the performance of natural corks with some of the TCA issues. And so I think because of that, that created an opportunity for other alternative closures to come into the market, such as synthetics and screw caps. But, you know, certainly over the last 10 years, we've made drastic improvements in the natural cork industry to really reduce the taint levels in the industry to where it's virtually non-existent, especially with programs that we're bringing on, like our DS100 program. All right. So tell me about this buyback program and what it means both to the winemakers and to the consumers. Absolutely. So really where DS100 got its roots was starting maybe back in 2009, a uh, customer that we were working with, Silver Oak at the time, they had had the, an experience or a bad experience, I should say, with a, a large format bottle. I think it was either a six liter or nine liter bottle that they had brought to an event and they were disappointed that the wine was spoiled because of the closure. And, you know, it's so unfortunate that winemakers put so much time and energy into making making this wine and just this little piece of bark could, you know, ruin that experience. So they came to us and said, hey, what's what's a way that we can really screen these corks non-invasively, non-destructively, so that we know we have confidence when we put this cork in the bottle that it's going to perform to our expectations and hold this wine for years to come. Right. So we developed this method called the DS100 program, and basically all it is is we take a small jar and we put a couple drops of, of pure water in there, just two tiny drops of water, and then the cork, and then we seal it up, just a little screw top to seal the jar, and then we let it sit overnight. And what happens is overnight, that water gets absorbed into the cork, and then it volatizes or releases any off aromas that are in that cork into the headspace of the jar. Then the following day, we have a technical panelist come through and sniff each and every single jar looking for any TCA or off aromas. So what we're able to do there is if a customer is ordering 100 corks, 1,000 corks, 10,000, or even 100,000 corks, we will individually inspect each and every single one of those corks for TCA and off aromas. And really, it's a way for us to ensure that we're providing the best possible, the cleanest possible corks to our customers. Well, so, wait, wait a minute. Hold your bottle stopper, Batman. How do, sure. you, how do, you, how do you inspect every 
every single cork. How well, does that work? Um, a lot of jars and a lot of trained panelists. A lot of um, a lot of no, it really a lot is of noses. It's a very time-intensive process. It takes months to process these orders. But since we started in 2009, we've really continued to scale our operation up as as the demand and the you know the community has grown around this DS100 program. So it started with large format corks, and now we've grown it into more of the standard size corks, where you know some of these very high-end wineries are putting their whole production through our DS100 process. It seems to me there ought to be some way that that process could be automated to actually sniff out the TCA. You can't do that with a machine or you have to use a real nose. David, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up. So we have a research team in Portugal working on this very technology right now, and they'll probably kill me for saying this, but we are extremely close to releasing this technology to the market in 2016. So we are using kind of the best and brightest of, of the technology available to us today to really automatically screen this and have, you know, full confidence that we're using, you know, the best of technology to screen these corks. Because it, it seems like to me, I read a story, in fact, I think we may have even covered it a year or so ago, about a team in Europe, someplace that had developed essentially an electronic nose. It wasn't to sniff out TCA, but I think it was to analyze aromas in wine, but, you know, same difference, same principle, I guess. Sure. So this technology that we're developing is a little bit different than an electronic nose. One of the drawbacks to the electronic nose is its uh, sensitivity. So when we're talking about TCA, we're talking about detecting at levels at parts per trillion. And the electronic nose can really only get down to the part per billion level. So it's not quite sensitive to get down to those aromas that we really want to catch that really have the most negative influence in the wine. So we've had to look at other technologies that really have the ability to detect down to those subpar per trillion levels. Holy smoke. Now, to your knowledge, what percentage of the wine drinking public can actually detect TCA with their nose? I was going to say with their bare nose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, you'd probably get 10 different answers if you ask 10 different people. There's certainly a range. So what the general saying is, is that anywhere from two to four part per trillion is where most general consumers can somewhat detect the TCA or, or will at least say, you know what, this doesn't taste right or doesn't taste like my normal shard cab that I'm used to drinking. So what percentage of consumers out there have that ability? Most people do because TCA is something that people are highly sensitive to, which is why it's something that we are so passionate about figuring out ways to get rid of it, basically. So I think it was probably about five years ago, there was a study done by the Tragon Corporation. Are you familiar with them? I'm familiar, yes. Yeah, and I know that at that time, the consumer sentiment toward synthetic enclosures and screw caps versus the real deal was still very, very heavily leaning toward natural cork. Have we lightened up some or are there still those diehards out there that are never going to change? David, there's certainly the diehards out there and, you know, God bless them because, you know, we're firm believers in natural cork and using kind of the tradition and technology and, and developing natural cork to really, you know, perform alongside any other technical type closure. That being said, I think um, there have been uh, major advances in alternative closure technology with companies like Nomacork and Guala who are looking at, you know, different liner technologies and helping winemakers control oxygen better. And, you know, I mean, wine faults can come, you know, outside of just, you know, a, a tainted bottle. You know, if you yeah. don't have proper bottling practices and if you're not controlling your oxygen, certainly you can have reductive characters or you can 
can have wine that's oxidized. So there's other things that, you know, closures are doing a great job at preserving wine. There's a lot to go wrong in the process, I'll tell you that. Peter Ledoon, Cork Supply USA, appreciate it very much. Thank you, David. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters this week. We'll be back here, same time, same channel. So when you join us again next week, let's make it a wine sealed under cork, if you please, and we'll see you then. You never know what part of the country or the world the Grape Encounters microphones will take you to. Don't miss a single experience. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition.